Well, good morning. If you have a Bible and you want to open it to John chapter 2, John chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. John 2, 1 through 11. Now, we've been looking at the book of John for a couple of months now, and we're going to stay in it during our Advent season because what is John saying? He is saying, the light has come into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The birth of Jesus is the activity of God in the world. And John wants us to understand it. He wants us to see that what Jesus is doing is God revealing himself to us. And so when we open up the book of John, we find John writing with a distinct purpose, very pointedly writing that we would know who Jesus was, know what Jesus did, know why Jesus did it, and in those things find God's plan for the redemption of humanity. So when you come to the verse we'll be looking at this morning, the passage uh, in John chapter two, this is where Jesus turns water into wine. It's a famous miracle of Jesus. It's at a wedding in a, in a place called Cana. And uh, he's going to obviously miraculously transform water into wine. And when you come to the passage, there's, there's several ways you can teach it. You can go at it a lot of different ways. You can go at it about uh, Jesus's relationship with Mary and how she knows who he is and how she and he interact with one another. You can talk about that. You can talk about the couple that's actually married. In Hebrew culture, it is a, it is a crime to dishonor your wedding guests. And running out of wine is a social disaster. It's almost illegal in some senses. So they are bound now by their disgrace and Jesus rescues them. It's a gospel message. You could teach that. You could teach if you wanted to, is it even Christian to turn water into wine if you're Baptist? So you could do that. That's a whole thing you could do. And, and uh, you, you could talk about that. But today, I want to show you something in the passage that's so innocuous, we might miss it. It's just this little phrase, and we might run right past it, but it's important to catch. And here's why. John loves little word games. When you read the book of John, you are looking for all the symbolism and word play he puts in. He's going to put literary bookends on stories. Like you'll have one story about a man named Nicodemus who's everything right. He's male, he's Jewish, he's a Pharisee, he's Sanhedrin, he's everything perfect. And Jesus tells him, nope, you gotta start over, you gotta be born again. And the next story, the very next story is a woman, Gentile, adulterer, uh, idolater. She's everything wrong. They're mirror images to each other. He tells the one who's right, you have to be born again. He tells the one who's wrong, I'm the Messiah. I've come to save you. Uh, he tells a story. Jesus, in one of his passages, uh, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he starts saying the, uh, the spirit has to come, but the wind is gonna blow a lot, which sounds like one of those Jesus sayings that makes no sense, right? Let's be honest, there's places where Jesus says stuff, and you know everybody was going, I don't know what that, do you know what that meant? Because I don't know what it means. Uh, but if you read the word in Greek, that word spirit and that word wind are all the same word. And he's making this poem of language. So John loves hiding these things all over the place. And when you read this passage, uh, you're going to find that he is putting something behind the scenes that we need to pull out 
And it's going to give us a picture of what John's trying to accomplish by writing his book. In John chapter 2, verse 11, the last verse of our passage, the summation of this story, here's what John says. He says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, the important thing to note is that immediately here, John calls this miracle a sign, not a miracle, a sign. When you read the book of John, there are seven miracles that Jesus performs. Now, that doesn't include his, resurre- that doesn't include his resurrection, his own, because he doesn't really per- technically perform that. Uh, but seven miracles Jesus himself performs. If you go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are called the synoptic gospels. And the word synoptic just means with one vision. They tell the exact same story, almost. There's little differences, but they're pretty much the same. There's a miracle in every paragraph. I mean, a miracle, miracle, miracle. They're just all over the place. But when you read John, there's only seven. And they're strategic. John puts them in there for a reason. We know because we watch all the word games and we watch how he uses liter- all these bookends and how he, he tries to make images and all. So that he puts seven very specific miracles in there and then doesn't even call them miracles, calls them signs, tells us he is loading these things with meaning, with import. Now, if you're saying, well, does that mean it really happened? Because that's a, a normal question that, that I get when we talk about these things. Well, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Yeah, of course it happened. It's just that John is arranging them in ways to make us understand he's getting to a larger point. If I'm writing the biography of Abraham Lincoln, I can tell you two things. I can tell his whole story about growing up and then becoming president and all these things. But if I try to write a book that says why Abraham Lincoln is the greatest president of all time, I may move all the facts around. Did I lie? Or am I putting them in an order that will make my point? At the end of this book, John writes a sentence and he says, I have written these things so that you may know Jesus is the Christ and in uh, no, believing, so you may believe he is the Christ and in believing have life in his name. His purpose is for you to read this and understand who Jesus is, what he did, why he did it, and how you are saved because of it. So, and plus understand that John is not writing hundreds of years after Jesus. He's writing about 50 years after Jesus did these things. If he writes about a wedding at Cana where Jesus transforms water to wine, it's not like a reader at the time couldn't have gone to Cana and said, has anybody heard this? Because obviously people go, no, that's crazy. He didn't do that. Uh, I mean, do you have any confidence that you know that what happened 50, 60 years ago? There's people in this room who could tell you, right? If I wanna know what happened 50 years ago, 60 years ago, I can call my mom. She's in her mid-teens then. Mom, what happened in the late 50s? Well, I like this boy, and we started kissing. Boom, mom, no, gross. <laughs> I wanted to hear about Sputnik or something. Don't tell me that, okay? So understand these ideas. These are stories that are happening that John is using for a reason. He wants us to see signs that manifest the glory of Christ. If you were here when we first started John, the whole first part of the prologue talks about the glory of God. And so John is saying, this story is going to show us the glory of Christ and thus the glory of God. 
So what's the story? Well, the first thing you need to realize is these signs play themselves out in a very specific way and for very specific reasons. John chapter two has Jesus turning water to wine at the wedding of Cana. John chapter four has Jesus healing the royal official's son. John chapter five has Jesus healing a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. John chapter six, the only miracle that's in all four gospels besides the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000. In John chapter six, also Jesus walks on water. John chapter nine, Jesus heals a man born blind. It's where the famous line, I once was blind, but now I see comes from. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. These are placed specifically, and there are details in them that John emphasizes in order to bring out larger points. All right, let's dive in. John chapter two, verses one through five. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. The first lesson here in this passage is notice how Mary does not care what Jesus says. (laughs) And that everybody at some points got to obey their mama. Like even Jesus, mom, this is not the time. Make him some wine. Well, okay, mama. Like not even Jesus gets out of this one, all right? Some people read this and it sounds pretty harsh to our ears. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Right? Doesn't that sound like Jesus said that to his mama? That's not good. We don't want that image in front of our children. What does this have to do with me? This is a Aramaic, a Hebrew idiom, okay? It's, it's just a figure of speech and what it literally says is what to me and to you. And what Jesus is telling her is, what I'm going to do is not what you want me to do. What I have is not what you have. He's saying, you think I'm Messiah in a certain way, but I'm telling you I'm Messiah in a different way. That's essentially what he's saying to her. But why does this whole thing revolve around wine? John is filled with statements, physical statements that are really spiritual truths. And what John is saying here about this wedding is they have no wine. But as you're going to see what he's really talking about is Judaism. They have no wine. That's gonna play itself out as we dive into the text. But I want you to understand that the Messiah, the Savior that the Jews expected, has all kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament about him. If you've ever heard the word Messiah or Christ, those are the the same ideas, Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek. They both mean the anointed one the chosen one, and it's the one the Old Testament predicts is coming from God to save, right? So the first place that you will find a prophecy about Messiah uh, is actually in Genesis chapter three. I mean, Adam and Eve sin, and God predicts the coming of the son of a woman who will crush the serpent's head. It's called the first gospel, the proto-evangelion. But you find them all over the place, and one of the places you find a prophecy about Messiah is when Israel, about to die, is blessing his sons. 
Now, Jesus is a descendant of Judah. Judah, the son of Jacob slash Israel. Jesus is his son, or great, 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 great grandson. So Israel's going down the line. He's blessing all his kids, and he comes to Judah, and he's going to bless Judah. And he says, the scepter will never depart your hand. Which, if you remember the story of all the brothers like when one other brother had a dream that the other ones were going to bow down to him, they sold him into slavery and killed him. So when your dad says, they're going to bow down to you, this is not what you want. Jesus is going, mm, no, dad, quiet. Keep that one under level. That's a Bible joke. You're going to have to dig into that one. So uh, it says, it will never depart your hand. This is what uh, is the prophecy over Judah and this Messiah to come. And then, still speaking, this is what, the prophecy continues and it says in, in Genesis 49, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now that's archaic. We don't get that. It's agrarian and archaic. So we really don't get it. But what's he saying here? Because if you grew up and lived in and understood farm life in an ancient setting, when you hear the phrase, he tied his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, you go, <laughs> why? Why would he do that? And you're going, I don't, I don't know why. Okay, here's why. What happens if you tie a colt or a foal or a horse to your choice vine? They eat it. You don't do that because you're destroying the best of your crop because the horse, the donkey, the colt is going to eat your choice vine. They're going to work their way right down and eat it all. But this prophecy is saying he ties his donkey to the choice vine because wine is so abundant, he washes his clothes in them. He doesn't even need the harvest. He is overflowing with wine. That's what it's saying. And if you go into the prophets later in the Old Testament, and I'm talking millennia later when this was said, when they talk about how they understood heaven, their prophecies of heaven are all banquets. And one of the descriptions is it will be the choicest wine overflowing in the cups, which again makes all of us, including me, former Baptists, very nervous. Can that just be Welch's? Let's say that, okay? <laughs> so when they're out of wine and Mary says they have no wine and Jesus, as you know, is about to perform a miracle regarding wine, your astute reader goes, wait a minute. The Messiah has a reign of wine, of overflowing wine. Now in John 2, 6, here's what it says. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. This is the water that Jesus is going to turn to wine. He has them fill them all the way to the top so they're totally full. Now I don't know about you, but at my wedding, one of the first things I made sure of was that we had 180 gallons of wine, okay? <laughs> That is a lot. So what's the deal? 
going on here and why is this important? All right. Uh, depending on the translation you have, uh, this phrase, the Jewish rites of purification, it may say things like ritual washings or ceremonial washing, something like that. The big technical phrase for this is called an ablution, an ablution. It is a washing of the body for religious reasons. And Judaism at this time and following is filled with them, filled with them. Now, the Old Testament law commands that the Jews wash themselves in certain ways for certain reasons. But by the time Jesus has come along, they have expanded this understanding so much that it has become tradition that rules how you wash yourself and not the actual Old Testament law. In fact, you can watch Jesus and his disciples get in trouble with the Pharisees about it uh, in Mark. Uh, or excuse me, yeah, Mark chapter seven. And this is what it says. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of their scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Again, notice these words, traditions, tradition of the elders. This is not what God commanded in the Old Testament. This is the way that the Jewish religious elders and leaders had expanded on what God commanded and made it even more difficult to hold on to. See, there, by the time that Jesus comes along, Jews are washing themselves constantly. You have to wash your hands before you eat. You have to wash your hands after you eat. You have to wash your hands twice before you eat bread. You have to wash your hands if you touch your scalp, not your hair, your scalp. So bald dudes, there you go. You have to wash your hands if you touch any part of your body that is normally covered by clothes. You have to wash your hand if you touch the inside of your ear. You have to wash your hand if you touch the inside of your nose, and should. <laughs> also, no pick, no pick, okay? Let those who understand get that joke. You have to wash your hands if you touch a leather shoe. You, you, on and on and on and on and on and on. So you can see why a Jewish wedding would need tons of water because they would constantly have to wash themselves. Because in Judaism, if you're unclean and you touch anybody who's unclean, they become unclean. So all has to happen is for one guy to go like this, touch somebody, and it's let's watch everybody at the party become unclean, okay? So they're constantly having to wash themselves. So when you have a big party like this, you've got to have lots of water so people can constantly wash themselves to keep themselves clean because Judaism is all about cleanliness. If you're in a religious cleanliness, if you're religiously clean, you can worship God. And if you're not, you can't. You cannot worship God if you are ceremonially unclean. So as the Jews understood it at that time, if you touch the inside of your ear, you are forbidden from worshiping God. 
And Jesus comes in. Now get ready. And destroys their ability to wash themselves. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. What are we going to do now? How are we going to wash ourselves? In Judaism, in, in, in Hebrew, just like we have lucky numbers and all this kind of stuff, in Hebrew, the lucky number, the number of completion was seven. That's why we have a lucky number seven. Uh, so seven was considered the number of completion. Why? Seven days of creation, right? So it's the number of perfection. Six becomes the unlucky number, like 13. Six becomes the unlucky number because it's almost perfect, but forever isn't. Now here's a little bit of, little bit of trivia for you. When you're writing in Hebrew, I'd be like this, sorry. When you're writing in Hebrew and you wanna emphasize something, they don't have exclamation points. They don't have emojis, okay? Their letters look like emojis, but they're not. When you wanna emphasize something, you repeat it. So if you say something twice, that's the exclamation point. And you never ever repeat anything three times unless you are sealing it as perfect forever. So you don't say that God is holy, holy. You say God is holy, holy, holy because he will forever be holy, will never not be holy, and is perfectly holy in all his ways. You see what I mean? So if you take six, and it's the number of incompletion, and you repeat it three times, what do you get? You get the perfect forever incompleteness. So when you see John say there are six stone water jars, what I want you to see is him saying, you can wash yourself all of your life and it will never work because you cannot wash away the sin in your heart. You can wash the dirt on your hands but you can't wash the sin in your heart. Jesus says this exact thing in Matthew to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside might also be clean. See, you can wash yourself all you want. You can do all the religious observance you want, but God looks at our hearts so that if I live a perfectly religious life, but my heart rails against God, the outside of my cup can be clean and it is irrelevant. What I need is to be transformed. God is about to do what we can't do. And when Jesus shows up and turns the water into wine, he takes away their ability to wash themselves, but gives them something greater. He gives them transformation. He gives them God working for them, changing them, saving them. All right. 
What I'm about to do, I'm going to walk you through the book of John up to this point. Some biblical scholars agree with the paradigm I'm about to show you. Some disagree. That's totally fine. You disagree. That's great. I agree with this. It's why I'm showing it to you. If I didn't agree with it and showed it to you, that would be bad. I agree with it and I'm showing it to you. All right. So John the Baptist shows up in John chapter 1. And it talks, Jesus' baptism is not in the book of John. It's implied. When John the Baptist shows up, he begins preaching and you have a sense of Jesus being baptized. Regardless, what you have is the beginning of John the Baptist saying, get ready. Because that's, that's, that's day one. So we have day one, which is John the Baptist uh, making his appearance, baptizing Jesus. And then in John chapter one, verse 29, it says, and then the next day, which makes that day two. Jesus walks and John says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's day two. In John chapter one, verse 35, Jesus calls his first disciples. But before that, in that passage, it says the next day, which makes it day three. So we have day three. In John chapter one, verse 43, Jesus calls his next batch of disciples, the second string disciples. And before that, in John chapter one, verse 43, it says the next day, so we have day four. Now, what's interesting here, as you can guess, is that John is not one to mention extraneous details for no reason. Six stone jars. Why do you put that in? For image. Why do you say the next day in the first few verses? Because when you get to the wedding at Cana, in chapter two, verse one, what does it say? On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. So what do you have? You have four days here and we have the wedding at Cana, which John introduces as three days. Days five, six, and seven. And on the seventh day, Jesus transforms water to wine. John begins his book by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. What other book in the Bible starts with the word in the beginning? Genesis. What does God do at the start of Genesis? He creates. How many days does God take to create the heavens and the earth? Six, I almost tricked you. Like I was going seven, six. Okay, if you went seven, that's good. Just stay down, be quiet, okay? Six days, God creates everything. And on the seventh, what does God do? Rests. On this seventh day, he goes back to work. On this seventh day, God begins, if you want to say, his new act of creation dead sinner to a live saint. He starts transforming his people. He turns them from water to wine. Now, if I told you, and I did, if you remember me saying, John is filled with physical statements 
that imply a spiritual reality. Watch what the reaction to the wine is. John chapter two, verses 10 and 11. Uh, people come to the master of the ceremonies and they say, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. We are not saved by law. Law is righteous and good. God's law is holy. It is perfect. What it shows in me is that I'm not. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's everything wrong with me. But God saves the good wine for the end. When he saves me, not by law, but by the grace of transforming me. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and what? Manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Christ offers us a salvation not based on our ability to clean ourselves, but on his ability to transform us. I don't know if you know this, him being God, that's easy. That's that for him. I experience it as difficult. He didn't blink. It's nothing. The Bible's filled with these pictures. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Seek Christ, understanding he transforms us, not by our ability to be cleansed by our own hands, but by his ability to change us. The gospel of grace, a salvation given to us by a savior who says, I will change you and I will change you from water to wine and your joy will be filled. Will you stand and pray with me? We close our time together. Some of our elders and their spouses will be here to pray with you. If you need prayer for anything, we would love to talk to you about what grace means. What does it mean to say God saves us by grace? It is a gift from God, and we'd love for you to hear about it. If you need prayer about anything, we'd love to pray with you. Something going on in your home, something in your health, anything. Uh, we'd love to pray with you, but right now we'll pray as a congregation, and then we'll be dismissed. Our Father in God, we praise you for Jesus Christ, our Savior King who saves us not according to our own works done in righteousness, but by the transforming power of his Holy Spirit unleashed in us that turned my heart from stone to flesh, that changed me from water to wine. God, I pray that you show us the glory of your son, the glory of the Father unleashed on earth and the Holy Spirit that lives in us. We praise you for all things, God. And Jesus, we thank you for the blood spilled for us. We thank you. You took on human form to save us. Praise your name. It's in your holy name we pray all these things. In the name of Jesus, our Savior King. Amen.